I believe the Lord gives grace to the humble. And so he just smacked my pride like mad. I feel like he's just humping me to a point where I just want to be a servant. I didn't know at the time he was doing it, but I thank God for it. Just one of the voices you'll hear today. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of First Person, the final program of 2013. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for joining us today as we wrap up the year with a few highlights of the past 12 months. We'll get started in just a moment. I don't know about you, but I'm already looking forward to the new year in anticipation of the guests who will come our way and tell us their stories. As a matter of fact, next week as we start 2014, we'll meet journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell, whose new book, David and Goliath, has received a lot of attention the past few weeks. Malcolm tells us the impact writing the book has had on his faith. That's next week on First Person. For the complete schedule, go online to firstpersoninterview.com. Well, let's begin our look back at 2013, our third full year of production of this program. We start with a highlight of a conversation last March with Keith and Kristen Getty in their Nashville home. By the way, since that interview, the Gettys have welcomed a second child into their family. But here's a few minutes of our visit, starting with Keith. We're so grateful. I mean, the opportunities we've had, I mean, as young people, we could never, either of us, even when we moved here, could have dreamed the opportunities we've had. And we're, we're, so, we're so grateful for that. And we're so grateful that... um. When you, when you think every day, when you think of the, the, the sin in your life, even things you wish you hadn't said, even last night or whatever, that, that the Lord can still use um, these bodies and these, and these limited gifts that we have to, to be involved in Christian service, it's pretty, pretty excellent, you know. You also feel that um, burden or healthy burden it is to continue with the work to try and continue trying to do it well and working at your craft and yeah. I think, stewarding the stuff best you can. You know, I think I think writing gets harder every year. I mean, this year I've had to work even harder to craft out some songs. I, mm. I look at the songs each year that we write and each year we get little little bits of little jewels that we're happy with, but it seems to get harder and harder every sure. year. So that's but I think I, I'm not sure I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. <laughs> You're also talking as a new dad. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things going on. And uh, it's not just the creativity and the performance, but it's all the behind-the-scenes organization, the business part of what you do, too. It's got, it's got to be very demanding. It is. We've been blessed with a very good team. Obviously, we made the unusual step of, of managing everything ourselves. So the, both the touring company and the label product company and the song company, we oversee and... So that's been a whole new way of thinking about how you do stuff. But over time, the Lord has brought people into our places. Kristen's father once said to us that resources will never be the thing that stops you doing things. It'll be personnel. And so it's taken a while, but we've managed to get really great, really a really great, great team of people, both both people who we aspire to, um, who are in our band or who are creative and who advise us, and also a wonderful team both the production team, the creative team, and the, the office team are just wonderful. There's not one of them we don't just love being with and working with. So. I think you're in an interesting position because not only are you mentored in this place by others, but now you are also mentoring those coming from behind, right? Yeah, we, we were just talking about that. We did one the, we just said the Irish Christmas this year, and four of the most impressive people on that tour were all between the ages of 21 and 25. And we like to and, think that they're close in age well, until, to us, and then we start doing Until now, we always thought ourselves as part of the younger crowd. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then finally he this year He thinks he graduated time, from college last year. And <laughs> so finally this year, for the first time, we realized these kids... These are people who, you know, were starting school when we were finishing school. And yeah. so mm. they're not quite old enough, to, young enough to be our kids, but they're they're much younger. But 
we learned for the first time this year what many of you, uh, many pastors have always told us, and that is the, the sheer energy of a new generation of guys who come in. And we stuck one of them onto the production team for production meetings, and they were just chirping up with suggestions that I thought were a little bit abrupt. But, <laughs> but you know, and each one of them has added has added a real spark to its young people. That's so. one of the reasons we moved to Nashville. You know, we loved our time in Cleveland, but um, Nashville attracts so many interesting people, particularly in our area of music, and we have learned so much. It was yeah. almost like going back to college for us to come mm. down here. Mm. Um, and the people that we've met, we um, live in the university district of, of this town, so some of these students, Keith, is talking about they're just you know a mile away they permeate the, no, the neighborhood they're sort they? of around yeah. and that, we've loved yeah. that part of it well this area is full of it's full of it's it's a music row we're beside music row and we're beside the universities we we, we don't get to meet many people in christian music unfortunately because they mostly live out in Brent, brentwood and franklin um but e- even even without that we have been able to meet you know, just like i would say i would say almost every good thing that has happened since we moved here has the has the signature of people, hasn't it? People mm. and community and people mm. we've met from songs to concepts. To but you are in the States. You're not back home in Ireland and now you've got Eliza Joy. He's American. Uh, who's American. So um, <laughs> your folks, Kristen, how do they feel about being so far away? Well, both sets of our parents, they're incredibly supportive and they believe in everything that we're doing. They miss us, but I'm not sure how much they would actually want us to come home because I think they enjoy coming to see us here. Oh, I so see. Okay. With everything gained, you know, then there's a little, yeah. there's a, there is sacrifice and we are Swings in a, yeah, we're in a unique <laughs> stage where our parents are, are healthy and well. We have other siblings here at home and starting to have kids and various different things. Um, but so for now it works, you know, but I don't, mm. we don't know what tomorrow mm. will bring and what the needs will be there, but we do love it here. Kristen Getty, along with her husband, Keith, one of our highlights today here on First Person. One story we tracked carefully during the year was Freedom Climb, a group of Operation Mobilization women determined to climb mountains on behalf of the victims of sexual trafficking. We talked with Kathy Anderson. Well, we had 48 women from all around the world. Uh, I think we counted, we were from 10 different countries, and we met there and uh, just started this incredible journey. Um, I think when we started out, the, the, the hike itself was not difficult. It was a very gradual ascent. But once we got up to about 18,000 feet, most of us started feeling the effects of a lack of altitude, and that's when we started breaking down. But the... Um, there were just so many things that happened on that mountain with um, women. When we left and we started that hike, I think one of the most significant things was that the ladies felt as though that they were attempting this climb for the women that were oppressed and exploited in the world. But what they discovered is once they got to the top of the mountain is the things that they were in bondage to. And as they laid those things in their broken state, I mean, we were, when you get up there and you're trekking at that altitude, you break down quickly and it just becomes a mental game. And so um, everyone had to go to that place where the Lord was really their only reserve to get to the top. So this was a spiritual journey. Oh, it was an incredibly spiritual journey. I mean, it was... It was so significant that when we got down, we were amazed because we had not anticipated the amount of the spiritual side that it that it mm. ended up being. And it was a, an ascent of up to eighteen thousand plus. Uh, Kilimanjaro, the top is about nine over nineteen. Okay, and you went how far? To the top, right to the top. There were forty three of us out of the forty eight that went right to the top. Oh. 
And so um, Uhuru Peak is the actual, actual very tip top, and, and several actually made it to that very, very highest peak. But Were you one of them? I was not. Oh. I had I had some gals on my team, and I turned around and I looked at them, and I knew they would follow me if I kept going. Yeah, but I yeah. also knew that it was not a good choice. That's to good keep leadership. Going. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was um, huh. when they are as white as a sheet and stumbling over their words. You know that. Yeah, we better go yeah, down. There's a there's a limit there. Yeah. Now you mentioned they were doing it on behalf of oppressed women and children. Yes. Let's talk about that for a moment. It okay. wasn't just to say, "Hey, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro." Right. It was to bring awareness and raise support. Uh, yes. for victims of sexual trafficking and yes. and slavery. Yes, and that's such a great question and thank you for asking. It's um the the climb part merely is a symbolic gesture of climbing a mountain of what that means for women around the world to climb to freedom mm-hmm. and it gives us a platform. I mean when you say that you have 48 women climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, people always are willing to listen. Um and so that's that's what we're doing. We just want to be able to get out there and tell the story of what life is like for most of the women of the world. Kathy Anderson of Operation Mobilization's The Freedom Climb, and we'll continue to follow this story in 2014. Here's a highlight of a conversation last March with Dr. Alistair McGrath about his new biography of C.S. Lewis, and I asked him about the threads of Lewis's life. There were several threads. Um, I began to have, uh, have a sense that the traditional way of looking at things wasn't quite right. And one of, the, one of the reasons I gained this perception was that I, in preparation for the biography, I, wrote, I read everything Lewis wrote in chronological order. I did that really to try and work out how his style developed, but also how his thought was developing. And I began to notice that although Lewis himself describes his conversion as taking place in 1929, that really, when you read everything from that year, there's no obvious sign of anything happening at all. And I just began to think to myself, something is wrong here. Maybe we need to do some rethinking. And there are other places where I just felt, look, we really do need to look at things very, very closely all over again. And so this biography really is opening up questions, re-examining things. And as I was saying, trying to give the best possible interpretation of this remarkable man. I read that section about his conversion with much interest because uh, was it a matter of him being an absent-minded professor that he got his own date wrong, do you think? Well, he's terribly bad about dates. In fact, for a few months in 1940, Lewis was uh, vice president of Magdalen College, at Oxford College, and he had the responsibility of arranging rooms for meetings. And it was chaotic. Uh, they were double booked. They weren't booked at all. And eventually they, they brought in Lewis's brother, Warney, to try and sort things out. So I'm afraid Lewis wasn't really very good about dates. And it may well be that he remembers very, very well what it was that led him to come back to God, but doesn't actually correlate this with the external world of days and times. Mm-hmm. He moved from being an atheist to believing there was a God and then later became a Christian. That's right, and both those transitions are very, very interesting. Lewis was an atheist as a younger man. In fact, he was a very aggressive atheist. And he had a correspondence with one of his Christian friends, and his friend did the best he could to convert him, but Lewis wasn't having it. But as we track Lewis's thinking, you can see him becoming increasingly disillusioned with atheism. It doesn't make all that much sense, and it doesn't satisfy. And so his 
conversion to belief in God is a landmark, but it's not an end point because Lewis keeps thinking and he begins to realize that just believing in some kind of generic God isn't good enough. And he then makes a transition to believing in a very specifically Christian way of understanding God. There's a great lesson there for us, isn't there? Well, there's a lot there. I think the story of Lewis is a great encouragement for any parent who's got atheist children. You know, Lewis, you know, made that transition. Others can make them as well. But also, I think it reminds us that we need people like Lewis to say, look, Christianity makes sense. It has a deep appeal. Atheism actually isn't everything it's made out to be. And there is lots that can be said to atheists. And Lewis helps us to say them. Dr. Alistair McGrath, one of our highlights of 2013. Coming up, Papa Joe Bradford, Buddy Green, and Rich Stearns. Next time, journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell talks about returning to the faith. And I wondered whether maybe one of the reasons I had drifted away is that I hadn't seen with my own eyes the power that comes with faith. It has just become an abstraction. The author of the new book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Malcolm Gladwell, next time on First Person. Let's continue our highlights of 2013. One of the most unique stories told on this program in the past few months was the story of Papa Joe Bradford, an ex-con. Let's listen. When I was incarcerated, uh, I did get into a, a, a big fight, and um, I was put into solitary confinement for 40 days in Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. I was all alone, I thought, and I was somewhat like a prodigal child. I grew up in the church. You know, I, I just didn't know God. You had all the facts. Yeah, I had all the, the little facts and uh, went through the, the motions growing up, but uh, I actually didn't know God. So at the Lord's place, because like I said, I was the all-American guy, you know, about to get a big paying job with IBM. And I, I found myself in a hole, uh, the darkest place, uh, to me anyway. And I had a dream. And in the dream, there was a red rose. I literally had a dream. And I slept one night. There was a red rose floating down a river. And uh, I didn't know interpretation. But, I, you know, in my mind, I looked at that red rose first as the love of God, because I thought it represented love. And then um, I looked at it as, um, you know, the love that a, a husband would give his, give his wife. I thought, well, Lord, in a position that I am, you know, is this you? Uh, are you talking to me? Well, after I got out of prison, I, I moved from Knoxville, Tennessee, you know, to Nashville. And uh, on the uh, first job I could get was a temporary job. And I, I wasn't on the up and up. I didn't check the little boxes, you know. <laughs> That's the question. Have you ever spent time in prison? Right, right. I didn't check the box. And on the first day on the job, let's just say my red rose walked up. And her name was Denise. Oh. And uh, Jesus used her to uh, start purifying me from all the mess that I accumulated in my heart. Mm-hmm. You didn't come out of prison healed then, did you? No, I, I came out with a seed in my heart. Like I said, I believe in solitary confinement. I had a seed, you know, planted there. And when I met this, this lovely lady, you know, God did something with her because I thought she was going to leave me. I mean, I'm all alone, you know, and the stigma of being, you know, 
an ex-convict and plus the uh, violent thing that happened in, in prison, like should never stay with me, you know? And so when I told my wife about what happened, you know, uh, you know, before we got married, you know, we, we were really just good friends and, uh, you know, I was starting to kind of like her, kind of like me. And <laughs> I turned my head away from a Wayne and, uh, after I told her what happened, because I just knew she was going to leave. And she, she took her hand and grabbed my chin and took, turned it back toward her. And she said, keep your chin up. You're not the same guy anymore. I believe the Lord gives grace to the humble. He says it in James 4 and 6. And so he just smacked my pride like mad. I feel like he's just humbled me to a point where I just want to be a servant. I didn't know at the time he was doing it, but I thank God for it. Papa Joe Bradford. More information at firstpersoninterview.com. On a trip to Nashville this past year, I sat down in the home of musician Buddy Green and asked Buddy to tell me his personal story. And I was really uh, a slave to my sin, to the things that, the bad patterns that were in place that I couldn't do anything about. So so what Paul writes about in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. Mm-hmm. The things I don't want to do, uh, the things I want to do, I can't do. You know, that that was really weighing on me, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. So for how long did that go on? Oh, it was probably a couple of years while I was dating her. But I remember one night coming back from one of those Bible studies, and and I uh, lived by myself in a little depressing little one-room apartment. I walked in there, and I just, I, I, was, I don't know if I just bowed my head or got on my knees or what, but I prayed, and it was... First time I can remember just praying to an invisible God and like he was there and just saying, I don't know if you're there, but I'm starting to think that this stuff is true, that your son is the only son and he was, he died on a cross for my sins and the world's sins and he's rose from the grave and he's alive today. And if that can help me, then I'm, I'm ready. Come on in. I mean, it was that kind of prayer. And all I knew is I meant it. And, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the next day I became Francis of Assisi. It was like, <laughs> but the next day I just knew that I wanted to believe. And every day after that I wanted to believe. And, and um, you know, I, I started getting sort of a hunger to read the Bible and understand it. And, you know, uh, to sum this all up, um, I shortly after that asked uh, Vicky to marry me. She said yes, and we got married and within six months. And um, I got a job with Jerry Reed that eventually moved us to Nashville, where we started going to church for the first time. So that was all within about a year of my conversion. Mm-hmm. And once we started going to church, and it was really a really good church, we just started, you know, growing in. Um, through Bible studies and fellowship, and, you know, we just became a part of the Christian family. So. No looking back. It really wasn't any looking back. I was so thankful to be delivered from the stuff that was holding me back. Uh, someone has said that we, we don't get the life that we deserve, but we get the life that God designs for us. But well, when you look back now, uh, you know, go back over all these, these well, decades, I'll be honest. Yeah, and, a long time. And see how God has traced uh, your life out for you. Yeah, that's that's well put. You do get the you get his design on your life. I mean, you give you give God your dreams, you know, and then he gives you back the thing that's ordered by him. And it's 
it may resemble your dreams a little bit, but it's so much different and so much better. Well, he gives us the desires of our heart. He does give us desire, you know, and he, a lot of times we don't know what those desires are. And we have some sort of um, tainted version of it. I mean, for me, you know, I, I, I wanted to see, one day we see my picture on the cover of Rolling Stone or something like that. You know, I was like, I was wanted fame and fortune and all that. And I have escaped all of that, Wayne. <laughs> uh, it's, what what I have, I, well, first of all, I've got a, an amazing wife of thirty years now. I've got two amazing children who are growing into beautiful adults. Uh, I've got a son-in-law, um, and hopefully, we'll have some grandkids before too long. You know, but it's, you know, those things are the most important thing to me. And and I think that if I'd have chased the dreams the way I want them, uh, that that wouldn't happen, or it may have been disrupted in some way. Buddy Green. And by the way, his Christmas CD, New This Year, is still available. More information at firstpersoninterview.com. Well, we love to tell people stories on First Person, and we have time for one more. This is Rich Stearns, the president of World Vision. I talked with him last April. For me, as uh, I was a science major, uh, neurobiology was my degree at Cornell University. And for me, it was a it was a question of, Truth. It is either true or it is false. Any religious uh, claim uh, or religious system, it's either true uh, or it's false. And if it's true, it's a big deal. And if it's not true, why would I go to church on Sunday if it's just a fairy tale and and it's not true? So because of this relationship I had with Renee, um, I really set out to find out for myself, whether this was true or false, this uh, this religion called Christianity and the claims of Christ. And I began uh, reading kind of obsessively. I was in graduate school getting an MBA, and I started reading book after book after book about uh, religion, comparative religion, archaeology in the scriptures, uh, science in scripture, uh, different books on apologetics. I read C.S. Lewis. I read John Stott and, and a number of other authors that you'd be familiar with. And at the end of that journey, I, I became more and more convinced that the claims of Christ were actually true, that he was an historical person who, who lived and died and, and did the things he claimed to do and was who he claimed to be, that he literally rose from the dead. And I, I came to believe that that was true. And I remember the moment when I said, if I had to bet my life on whether the Christian story is true or false, what would I bet? And I realized that I did have to bet my life because I was either going to bet that it didn't happen and it wasn't true or I had to bet that it was true. And there was no halfway uh, because what I understood or what I believed is that if Christ was the Son of God, then he had to be everything in my life. That I, if I can use an analogy of playing a game of poker where you put chips into the center when you bet, um, in some of those old Western poker games, they'd push all their chips into the center and they'd put the, <laughs> and then they'd put the deed to the farm in there and they'd say, I bet yep. it all. I have so much confidence. All I'm in. all in. Yeah. And so that day I, I closed, I think I'd read 50 some books and I closed the last book and I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I believe it's true and I want to bet the farm. I want to put all my chips in because I don't want to live my life based on a lie. And if Jesus is the truth, then everything else is a lie. Rich Stearns of World Vision. Well, it's been great fun to look back on the year and to thank God for the opportunity to get to know the people whom we've met together on First Person. 
You'll find more information about our program at firstpersoninterview.com and on Facebook. Well, before we close today, a special word of thanks to the unseen and unheard producer who's behind the scenes. Joe Carlson works even harder than I do most weeks to bring you this program. And for that and much more, Joe, thank you and Happy New Year. I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll see you next week for a conversation with Malcolm Gladwell here on First Person. First Person.